So if you're genuinely trying to split the difference, it can't be done. I say, ah, you know, I can't do this deal for less than a hundred. I make you think a hundred, oh my God. So I go, you know what, let's split the difference. I'll do 50. You're now relieved. But in point of fact, I lied to you. I cheated you, I conned you about what I want. Now, if I'm lying about that in the negotiations, I lie about lots of stuff. Welcome back to Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan murray Serta, and this is the podcast where we take you into the world of what it really takes to be a top entrepreneur. Today, I couldn't be more excited to be welcoming Chris Voss onto the show. He's a negotiation expert, but not just any expert. He was the FBI's chief international hostage and kidnapping negotiator before turning his hand to the world of business negotiations. This is not an episode you want to miss. First up, I wanted to know how you become an international hostage negotiator for the FBI. Like, what does that path actually look like? I was getting a little bit bored. I was a police officer, Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. And uh, my first year there, I was in a precinct that had a lot of street life, uh, very busy, lots of people on the street, bars, bad guys. And I loved it. And then my second year, they transferred me to a largely residential area, which is a different kind of work, slower, more meticulous. I'm not a particularly meticulous person. So I was, uh, it was a little quiet, a little slow for me at the time. Also, my father had just, uh, you know, he paid for my college degree. And then I went out and I got a job that did not require a college degree. And so in hindsight, if, if I'd have been my dad, I'd have asked for my money back. But instead, he figured that I was committed to law enforcement and thought I should look at federal law enforcement. He had a buddy that was a Secret Service agent. And I will tell you that at the time, I didn't know the Secret Service from the FBI, from the CIA. You know, it was federal alphabet. I didn't know him. But I talked to the Secret Service guy and he said, you know, with the Secret Service, I've traveled all over the world. And I hadn't been anywhere at that point in my life. I mean, I, I'm not even sure that I'd even seen Canada. So the thought of somebody paying to, for me to travel all over the world really intrigued me. As luck would have it, the Secret Service was not hiring at the time the FBI was. I put in my application and it ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to me. Yeah, and I guess one of the best things that ever happened to the FBI, realistically. So, <laughs> you know, let's jump forward. How did you become a negotiator? Well, I was on a SWAT team. I was slated to go to the SWAT team with the PD before I left. And so then my first office, Pittsburgh, every field office, every major city in the U.S. has a field office and every major city, every field office has a SWAT team and a negotiation team. So I got on the SWAT team in Pittsburgh and I got transferred to New York and decided to try it for the FBI's version of the Navy SEALs, which is the hostage rescue team. Tried out for HRT, didn't make it, re-injured my knee. I was gonna try it again when I re-injured my knee, and then uh, it was major surgery again. And we had negotiators, I like crisis response. I didn't figure negotiation could be that hard. It was talking, right? You know, how hard could it be? I talk to people every day. And so I sort of circuitous route to get on the negotiation team was initially rejected. But then when I, when I got on the team, it was phenomenal. I loved it. It was more satisfying than SWAT ever was for me. It was for me. What do you see as the core skills of a great negotiator? Principally, 
you know, you got to be a great listener. Business negotiation, hostage negotiation. First of all, and listening is not waiting for your turn to talk. It's actually an evolved skill. There isn't any negotiation book out there that doesn't list listening as an advanced skill that you have to actually work at. And that's the key issue. I mean, secondarily, ideally, you're coachable. If you're coachable, you learn faster. Everybody learns. But it's kind of, do you learn by doing or do you learn by doing and being coached? And if you're coachable and, and you can develop the skill of listening, it becomes an immensely powerful tool. There's a great section in the book where you explain so much of the psychology of what happens in a negotiation. What's going on in the listener's side, what's going on in the, the speaker's side. I'd love you to share, if you don't mind, I'd love you to share sort of a high level of what, what basically are the major functions that are going on, psychologically speaking, in most negotiations. Yeah, um, and that's a great question. And I will tell you now in a Black Swan method, you know, the Black Swan group, we're actually more into neuroscience than we are into psychology. The human decision-making process runs a sequence. And the sequence is we reconcile all the negatives before we consider the positives. And that's why in many cases, a lot of relationships take a really long time to get to because people have so much negative clutter in their brain. People think it takes months to resolve all this negative clutter, to build trust. And it doesn't. It's just that we didn't know effectively how to do it. We didn't have the neuroscience data, for example. Sort of the command post of our emotional thinking is the amygdala. Everybody's heard of the amygdala. Near every thought either starts there, goes through there, the amygdala is involved. Sequence doesn't matter because it's there. So the amygdala, basically, the real estate in the amygdala is dedicated to 75% of the space in that organ is for negative thinking. 75% of that space, which then begins to speak to why negative thinking clutters our decision-making or the sequence of decision-making. Now, there were neuroscience experiments where they induced negative thinking into people's brains by showing them a picture that made them sad, angry, lonely. It didn't matter, but it induced a negative emotion. They got them in an fMRI. They watched that part of the brain light up with the negative thoughts. Then they simply said, what are you feeling? Effectively self-label. We, you know, we would call this in a black swan group a label. And when people just simply identified, labeled the negative thought, the electrical activity in the negative part of the, of the brain diminished every time, not some of the time, not 20% of the time, every time. Now, the distinction there is the degree of diminishment would vary. Sometimes one label might clear it all out. Sometimes it might take seven labels, but that's the way the brain decides and gets to decisions that it sticks to. Because then once the negative part of the brain is shut down, the smaller positive portion takes off and is incredibly powerful. And that's why people in anecdotally, they're like, you know, once we establish a connection, you know, once the positive took over, there was no looking back. And without neuroscience, we just didn't really know the sequence. Now, so what does this have to do with the black swan method? Negative labels accelerates the process. The application of tactical empathy 
and focusing on calling out and diminishing the negatives to start with seems very indirect based on our experience. You know, but based on mankind's experience, the sun goes around the earth because <laughs> that's our observable data. That's what we see, not knowing that we're seeing it wrong. So when me and my coaches, when we teach somebody, we start out with an, a very aggressive process of labeling negatives, even inoculating from negatives. That's the other thing that's really crazy about this entire thing. We find out we can inoculate a negative. You know, what do I mean? If I'm in a business deal and I haven't, the negative hasn't come up yet. You've just met me for whatever reason, but I'm getting ready to make an ask. You being a human being, you can't help it. Your caveman wire is going to take over and you're going to react negatively to the ask. You're going to think I'm greedy. It hasn't happened yet, but it's in the eminently predictable future. So what do I do before I make the ask? I'm going to say, look, it's going to sound greedy. And you will imagine, because you have an amygdala, something 10 times worse than what my ask is. And then when I ask for it, you'll be like, oh, no, that wasn't bad at all. <laughs> it's eminently predictable once you understand the sequence. Got it. That's a brilliant, brilliant insight. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I want to talk about your experience as a negotiator as well. So tell me about a time that you really screwed up a negotiation. What happened and how did you feel? One of the things I talked about in the book, uh, the Burnham Sabero case in the Philippines, Burnham Sabero kidnapping. Uh, 
That that thing was ugly from beginning to end. I mean, uh, the terrorists murdered one of the Americans about three weeks in, Guillermo Cerbero. We were still trying to get organized around it. You know, governments, both governments were involved in a very big way. Before we got our arms around it, you know, they murdered Guillermo Cerbero. And then, then we engaged. I'm an international negotiation coach. That's really what I am. The Black Swan Method, my team, we understand negotiations globally. Hostage negotiators worldwide use the same aid skills. Why is that? Because as human beings, as you know, neuroscience, there's wiring that's in everybody's head. It doesn't matter what your age, ethnicity, gender, religion, diet. You know, I, I jokingly like to say it even works on vegans, and we know how ardent they are in their beliefs. But everybody's got the same neuroscience wiring. So that's why I can coach anywhere in the world, literally in any industry. So we haven't got set up. Our coaching isn't set up yet. We begin coaching the outcome. Now, we got a solid relationship built between the negotiator that I'm coaching and the bad guy's negotiator. Relationship of trust. We're reading it very honestly. What we're not taking into account is what, you know, we live in in a black swan method now. There's always a team on the other side. And a point of fact, the deal killers are as important as the decision makers, the people that are away from the table, behind the table on the other side. So the deal goes down. Uh, we make, you know, the negotiator working on behalf of the family, they make the payment. We read the negotiator on the other side is having a genuine agreement. Problem is his team betrays him and everything goes bad. The payment is stolen. They claim parts that they didn't receive all of it. The negotiator, the point of contact on the other side is genuinely embarrassed. We read genuine embarrassment in the communications with us afterwards because he was just shocked and embarrassed and humiliated because his team didn't back him up. He thought he was a legitimate rep. And then ultimately, two out of the three remaining hostages are killed in a, in a botched rescue attempt. And it was just, it was ugly from end to end. We've since figured out, we changed our hostage negotiation strategies to take the people not at the table into account. And then we found the exact same dynamic in business. We were in a running for... Um, negotiation contract for Verizon probably about five years ago with a subcontractor, somebody else is leading the interactions on our behalf. We find out through the process that fully 50% of the deals that Verizon signs are never implemented. Half. What's going on? What's going on is the deal killers on the other side. These are signed deals. Sign deals. They go into, you know, terms and conditions, you know, the purgatory phase of all contracts that everybody assumes is part of the process. No, it's not. It's when the snipers on the other side decide to wipe out those deals because they weren't involved. We developed a methodology to take that into account. Really counterintuitive stuff. But the people that we coach... Their signed deals are implemented. They're, half of them don't go down, down the, the toilet, down the drain. All, everything they sign gets implemented because we take this into account. And that all stemmed from that failure in the Philippines. 
Can you, can you give us a little a nugget of wisdom? What are the counterintuitive processes that you take people through here? The, the real thing is, uh, you know, the purpose of a question is not to get information. The purpose of a question is to get the other side to think and to plant thoughts. You know, that Leonardo DiCaprio movie way back when, Inception. You know, most people think if you got to get information, you got to ask good questions. It's a way to get information. It's highly inefficient. But what you want to do is you want to plant seeds of doubt so the other side gets organized. What does that look like? We have something called a calibrated question. And we will ask in the negotiation, how do the people that are going to use this product, how do they feel about this? How did things break down in the past? What does implementation look like with the users? Now, the point is not getting the answer from your counterpart. Your counterpart's going to say, oh, fine, you know, fine. They're, they're, you know, everything's good. You know, we've taken everything to account. But you got to ask a question more than once. You should ask it at least three times. And by the third time you ask each one of those questions, your, your point of contact thinks, yeah, wait a minute. Maybe I better check. And then they'll go back to the deal killers and give them what they wanted all along, to be involved in a process. You'll never talk to them. But what you, what you needed was buy-in to cover a lack of team organization on the other side and your deferential asking of these calibrated questions. And they're all going to start with the words what or how. Those are the two most critical words to start questions with if you ask them. And they trigger what Danny Kahneman would refer to as slow thinking or in-depth thinking. Kahneman talks about a system of thinking when people really stop in their tracks and think. Stop you in your tracks question. And that's the real purpose of a question is to plant ideas and to create the collaboration on the other side to the people you're never going to get to, but who will kill at least 50% of your deals. Bit of a weird question, but do you believe that a negotiator can be lucky? Ah, uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a certain amount of serendipity. Uh, the stars in the universe line up for you. And I absolutely believe that uh, the better your process, the luckier you become. So there's probably a certain amount of luck involved. And the question is, how do you trigger luck? You know, with a good process, something as silly as a positive demeanor, because if you have a positive demeanor, there's data out there that indicates you're 31% smarter. Moods are contagious. You can induce positive affect in your counterpart or at least add to it, encourage it, increase it with a smile, with a tone of voice. It's why a lot of people like to joke in interactions. If you make them smarter and you smarter at the same time, that's going to increase your luck factor. A negotiator, a world-famous negotiator, everybody's heard of him, that I'm a big fan of, Bono from U2. Bono and Bob Geldorf negotiated the forgiveness of hundreds of millions of dollars of African debt. Didn't give anything return, just complete forgiveness. And I remember reading an article that Bono wrote about, because he's going to bad guys. He's going to Vladimir Putin to get him to wipe this debt off. I mean, he's not going to philanthropists to get this done. He's going to people that are politicians 
whatever you think of politicians. He said that if he could get them to laugh with him in the first conversation, the chances of them getting the deal were always higher. Is that luck or is it encouraging luck? Little things like that can make all the difference in the world. I mean, the idea of trying to make Vladimir Putin laugh, you have to be quite a funny guy, in fairness. Um, never had Bono down for a sense of humor either, I'll be honest. Seems like <laughs> quite a serious dude. So my question here then, actually, I'm someone who makes jokes all the time. I actually often wonder, is my positive demeanor, my sense of humor, my fact that I like to make people enjoy spending their time with me, I like to be liked. I like to be affable. I'm aware of these things. I'm aware that every positive has a downside, etc. I've definitely always wondered if it makes me a poor negotiator. Is there any data towards that? Is there like a good or bad time to be making jokes? You know, there's a difference between telling jokes and being humorous. And is the humor appropriate for the moment? One guy that we coached in negotiations, he's in sales of Northrop Grumman. They're selling arms. They're selling weapons on behalf of the U.S. government to the government of South Korea. So they, they got a problem. It's going back and forth. South Koreans are mad at him. They send, they send my buddy and, and a colleague to go straighten it out. So they get there. The South Koreans put them in an office, in a room in their office building, in the center of the building, a room with no windows. Now, you're not rolling out the red carpet for somebody if you're meeting in a room with no windows. This is basically a large closet. This is not a welcoming place to be. The South Koreans are so mad at them. And so they're sitting there and the lights go out. And these guys are sitting there in pitch black. And after sitting there for a few seconds, waiting for the lights to come on, my buddy says, whose hand is that on my leg? And just then the lights come back on and they burst out laughing. And then they ended up making the deal. So humor appropriate to the moment can be phenomenal. Uh, so, that, you know, there is a timing issue, but there's very definitely a strategic advantage to being smarter and to making the other person smarter. It's short term, you're going to come up with better ideas Long term, they're more likely to look forward to dealing with you again. Chris's book, Never Split the Difference, is a Wall Street Journal bestseller, and I've read it myself three times. As we discussed the book, Chris gave me a quick impromptu masterclass on co-authoring. Let me talk about it more in terms of process uh, as opposed to writing, because, you know, we got a great co-writer, Tal Raz. Tal Raz did the writing. So from the time that, we, you know, my son and I, Brandon, got started on the project, to when it was, the book was delivered, it was about three years. And it was really more about assembling the proper team. And I fired four writers and finally got tall because of the, the great advice is, if you want to write a book, go to the bookstore, find the book you want to emulate and hire that writer. And found out the hard way, great writers, writers are like cars. Like if you want to run in Formula One, you don't go buy the best sport utility vehicle. You don't go buy the best Jeep to run Formula One. Or if you want to go off-road, you don't get a Formula One. I mean, they're very, very different. One of the writers that we fired in the process had written 50 books, seven New York Times bestsellers, and specialized in collaborations. I mean, you know, this book 
uh, was a collaborative effort. But this guy didn't do business books. He wasn't a star business writer. So by the time we kicked it into gear with Tall, we were we already had the book deal, had the um, on a next to the last writer. He'd come up with a pretty good proposal. Had been through a couple of agents until I finally found an agent that was positive and encouraging, a guy named Steve Ross, and um, took it to the publishers. The publishers went nuts. That put us in a position because Tall Ross, the guy, is in demand. I sat down with Tall in New York, and he says, look, I think this is an interesting book. I think it's a great idea. I'm not sure how well it'll do. The market is full of negotiation books. He said, but look, you know, I got a wife and kids, and this is what I'm getting paid. I'd be happy to do this on a percentage basis only, but my wife's going to kill me, and here's my fee. And at the time, the fee was out of reach. When we got the book deal, we went back to Tall, and I said, I could do your fee now. Once we kicked into gear with Tall, he wanted a year to write the book. We got him to agree to 10 months, and he's, he's an artist. He wrote the book out of order. Tall interviewed Brandon and I extensively, about 36 hours. He downloaded our brains. Then we put a ton of material on top of him. He's a brilliant researcher. He's absorbed material. He immerses himself in the area. You know, he must have read 30 negotiation books. We must have given him 50 videos of classes that I taught to watch. And then he delivered the middle of the book, which was bizarre. No writer I've ever heard of starts in the middle. He delivered the middle of the book and then he wrote the next, he wrote the last chapter next to last. And then he wrote the first chapter last. And once, once his writing and research kicked into gear and a lot of writers will not research, they want to get all the information from you. Tall did his own research and the depth of his research made the book better. So once we kicked it into gear with him, it was about a 10 month process and he did the writing. So let's talk about the term never split the difference. What does it mean? And what are the core principles that people need to know about never splitting the difference? And by the way, let me just say that every time I read it, I come so high off adrenaline. I sometimes read it before I have a big negotiation. You know, it takes practice, takes real world practice to implement and get better at this. And there might be one big negotiation that's important that we're consciously aware of anyway, every few months. And that's not really enough frequency to get good at this. So I'd love to touch on all of this. Yeah, well, you know, we coach everybody small stakes practice for high stakes results. You know, get used to it to using it with your family and your friends and who you're buying coffee from and who you're getting a ride from. Because, you know, that's when you're going to develop your feel. And you're going to go, there's a concept that we're very much into these days uh, in our coaching model, which is we're borrowing from martial arts. We call it shoo-ha-ri, which is beginning, intermediate, and expert. And when you're in shoe in the beginning, you know, we're going to want you to do it exactly as we say for you to do it. And we're going to want you to get all that small stakes practice in. And then when you're in ha, in intermediate phase, not only are you applying what we're doing, but you're experimenting with it a little bit. You're making slight changes here and there. And in martial arts, they say you begin to see what other masters are teaching. In my company, you know, we got a whole team of masters. So we're going to want you to be coached and learn from a variety of people. For example, if you were myself, Brandon, uh, my son, and Derek Gaunt, our principal thought leaders, if you will. If you ask 
each of us the same question, we're probably each going to give you a slightly different answer. And all answers will be uh, complementary and useful and helpful, and they'll all be right. It's a little bit like religion. You know, each religion's got something right in their approach to the essence of man, if you will. When you're in re, the, other, the cool thing about re when we're coaching you is you begin making up your own rules. And the people that we coach into re, when we interact with them, one of the guys the other day, we interviewed him for a, a, an event that we held. And he said, all right, so this is when I begin to gather data with my eyes because you're, you're trying to get a read in the moment. And I wrote that down. I said, gather data with your eyes. And I asked him, I said, hey, man, that, that's cool. When did you think that up? And he said, I, you know, I, I didn't think it up. You know, you, you, you guys had to have said it somewhere along the line. I said, no, <laughs> I'd have remembered that one. It would have jumped out at me. You said it. But in re, you're making up your own rules. You're in flow. And then, then it's a lot of fun. So I guess the small stakes practice for the high stakes result. You're getting more small stakes practice. And when you go into the game, you'd be ready to rock. Got it. So, yeah. So what is the underlying principle of, of never split the difference? What are the key things that people need to know? Splitting the difference is always a bad move. Now, splitting the difference only comes up in one of two instances. Let's say you're trying to genuinely split the difference. This triggers a downward spiral because of what Danny Kahneman taught us, and he won the Nobel Prize for it, a loss thinks twice as much as an equivalent gain. So if we each split the difference, and let's say there's a $10 difference, you give in $5. The problem is, because you're human, you're going to feel like you gave in 10 And you're going to carry that resentment until you get me back for 10 Now you've hit me for 10 What do I feel like I've lost? 20 Now I got to get you back. And the get back time is always an implementation. That's why... You know, if in your contracts, you like penalty clauses, you're triggering this downward spiral without even noticing it because you're putting these penalty clauses in for exactly the reasons that I'm describing. So if you're genuinely trying to split the difference, it can't be done because of the human nature wiring that you've got going in your head. Now, what's the other time people split the difference? It's when I high anchor and I lie to you. I say, ah, you know, I can't do this deal for less than 100. And, you know, I, I make you think, 100, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And so I go, you know what, let, you know, let's split the difference. I'll do 50. And you're now relieved that I did it for 50. But in point of fact, I lied to you. I cheated you. I conned you about what I want. Now, if I'm lying about that in the negotiations, I lie about lots of stuff. You now just got into a relationship with a person that lies to get what they want, which now is going to trigger a different kind of downward spiral. So no matter which instance you're in and splitting the difference, neither one of them are healthy for you long term. So what are your top tips for avoiding said scenario, like at a high level? Well, you know, you got to you got to pivot off price as quickly as possible. You know, let's start talking about what's going to make the deal a great deal. And the real big tip is being willing to let the other side talk first. Everybody who comes to the table is dying to make their case, dying to talk. 
So that's how you get into this whole turn-taking thing. I'm, I'm not listening. I'm waiting for my turn. Now, what's going to happen is if you feel listened to, that part of your brain is going to turn down and the part of your brain that's actually going to listen will get kicked into gear in that sequence. I was talking before about the sequences of what, the way the mind works. You can't listen while, you, while you're dying to talk. So if I want you to listen to me, let me make you feel heard. Let me get everything, not only give you the chance to talk, but make you feel heard. It opens up an entirely different part of your brain where now I might be able to interact with what you said. I can agree to what I liked and I can gently disagree to what I didn't like. And since you were heard, you're going to be much more open to my ideas. Yeah, it makes all the sense. Okay, have to ask, who is the best negotiator in your family? Uh, you know, it'd be a toss-up be between my son, Brandon, and my daughter-in-law, Maya. They're both really, really good. Some of the best deals a company has ever had, you know, Maya cut those deals. She's an interesting combination. She's extremely analytical, extremely introspective. But she acts like, you know, one, the other type, the accommodator. She's likable. She laughs and she giggles and she's pleasant. Ridiculously disarming, incredibly fast brain. Sometimes she just doesn't say no at all. She just laughs and then doesn't say anything. And people just continue to make counteroffers as a result. Brandon, on the other hand, he's as much of a thinker as she is, but he throws much more calculated gambits in. Like, you know, one of, one of the tools that we have come up with since a book came out is something we call thought-shaping questions. And it's the next generation of a calibrated question. Brandon came up with that spontaneously. He was negotiating getting an airline ticket changed when he missed the flight. And he says, yeah, you know, I interacted and I got my flight changed with no penalties and I actually got the same class of service and it was actually a better flight. You know, I went home, I cut the grass in my house. And he said, I used a calibrated question. And so I said, all right, cool. Well, tell me what you said. And I said, all right, you didn't use a calibrated question. What you did was, we're going to have to think of a name for it. It's a whole new skill, what you blended together. And basically uh, what he said after the run-up to empathy, empathy positions you to make your ask. And what he said was, how do I get onto another flight with no change in service and no penalty without you getting in a lot of trouble? Because the first person they think of if they give you your ask is, how much trouble am I going to get in if I do this? If you bury this into your calibrated question, starting with the word how, then before they move forward, they think about whether or not they're going to get in trouble. They reconcile it into their brain, and then they give you what you want. And he thought that went up on his own. That is brilliant. When's the last time you feel like you've lost a negotiation? Is there such a thing for you? Yeah. You know, um, if I get annoyed or if I'm in a bad mood, negative thinking actually makes you dumber. If positive thinking makes you smarter, Sean Acker, Harvard psychologist, brilliant TED Talk, The Happiness Advantage, says a positive frame of mind makes you 31% smarter. Well, by definition, then, a negative frame of mind makes you dumber. And real negotiations are really about collaboration and implementation. And there have been times that for a variety of reasons, I've allowed myself to get into a 
negotiation about collaboration when I was in a bad mood. And it goes down the tubes every single time. I perform poorly. My tone of voice is off. As soon as my tone of voice is bad, it puts a negative mindset in the other person. It triggers a downward spiral and it just it just goes bad. And, you know, I'll be in a bad mood based on frustration with something else, lack of sleep, bad timing on my nutrition. About two weeks ago, I spent about a week in a bad mood and all of my collaborative interactions at best were neutral and in some cases were completely counterproductive. So what happens to me? Yeah, I mean, it's good to know, right? It's good to know that, you know, even the master still has stuff to learn. Absolutely. All of it is perishable. Like I may go through a couple of weeks where I haven't had a negotiation with a skin in the game. Well, because of the pandemic, I haven't been out of the house and I haven't gotten my small stakes practice in. And each and every day, your negotiation skills, you're either the same, you're worse, or you're better. Uh, that's human nature on any, any skill-based ability. Same, worse, better. Two out of three of those require effort. I mean, it requires effort to stay the same. And if, if you haven't got some repetitions in, when tomorrow comes, you're going to be worse. Now, when we told everyone that Chris was coming on the show, we were inundated with questions from you, our listeners. So I put a few of them to Chris. First up, how can women navigate negotiations in business environments dominated by men? Traditional advice is very male-oriented because it sprung out of people not knowing, really realizing it was male-oriented. And a lot of bad business advice up until very recently has been for women to be one of the boys. You know, you need to act less like a woman, more like a man. Uh, I think that's bad advice. I think any time that you're being advised to deny any part of who you are, you're diminishing your own abilities. Your own, you have abilities that you're not bringing to the table. So other than that, moving forward, there's always a lot of testing behavior by males towards their counterparts. You know, if a man is bullying a woman, that man is also bullying other men. And it's really easy not to see that and think that you're being bullied because you're a woman. That guy does it with everybody. That's a default mode. Um, how you do something is how you do everything. That's an accepted dynamic in human nature. You're not just a jerk to certain types of people. If you're a jerk, you're a jerk all the time. Women or any non-white male that is victimized by that kind of behavior, it's understandable if you are different than your, your bully to assume that the person is bullying you because of your differences. There are occasions when that's true, but most of the time they're a jerk to everybody. So interpreting data, be very careful how you interpret the data that you're given. Are they a, a jerk to you because it's you, or are they a jerk because they're a jerk? Chances are they're a jerk because they're a jerk. Now, your original question, how do you deal with men when you're a female? Use the same emotional intelligence-based tools that I would teach anybody else. Deference is a superpower. It's incredible what you can get away with and what you can say with a deferential tone of voice. That would probably be one of the things in traditional negotiation that women are told not to do or that they're leery of doing because a bad negotiating man would be like, no, you got to take charge. You got to be assertive. Well, 
you don't have to be a jerk and be assertive. You gotta be a jerk to be aggressive, but you need to be assertive. You can be far more assertive from a deferential point of view, and it's more likely to land. So there's some counterintuitive stuff that in traditional negotiation, women are told not to do when in the black swan method, we're saying, no, do it. You know, don't be afraid of it. Let the process work for you. One more question from a listener now. Remember, you can pitch your own questions to me on Twitter at Dan Murray Serta. Now, this one was from Jacqueline, who wanted to know, how do you negotiate with crazy? So what's your definition of crazy? Most people's definition of crazy is what you're saying doesn't make sense to me. Now, there's literal actual crazy where people actually are fundamentally flawed. Paranoid schizophrenics, for example. Or there's people who we just don't agree with their thinking. So take the word crazy out of your vernacular and put in predictable or put in patterns. Everybody has patterns. Everybody. Everybody has patterns. You know, in, in the United States, uh, Donald Trump is no longer president, but people who didn't like Trump would say he was crazy. You know, you, don't, you never know what Trump is going to do. People that didn't like him would say, and I'd say, really? So when he tweeted at 5.30 in the morning this morning, that surprised you. Well, no. Well, he's predictable. Trump, everybody else, every politician, every person is predictable. People say crazy when they don't agree with the thinking or they don't agree with the patterns. But anybody that you've been around for more than a day, if you're surprised by what they're saying or doing, then you've got short-term memory loss because they've been doing it for a while. So if they're predictable, take their patterns into account and then just apply the emotional intelligence tools of the black swan method and you're going to find yourself in a completely different world and they're not going to be crazy anymore because you're going to be able to navigate the interaction with them. Love it. Chris, I feel like I started shoe. I'm ending closer to re. So thank you for your time, my friend. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. Next week on Secret Leaders. I reflected back whenever I discovered this crazy, quirky world of matchmaking, my first thought was, in fact, it wasn't my first thought, it was my mum's first thought that she screamed on the phone at me. The hell are you doing? You've spent so many years working to be a business psychologist and to follow a professional career path. And what the hell do you want to work for a dating agency for? I think was pretty much her words. I thought, okay, thanks, mum. That was Rachel McLinn, the founder and CEO of what's considered the world's best elite matchmaking agency, the Vida Consultancy. What do you think an elite matchmaker charges for their services? Well, find out next week. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.